Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. We deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Haran. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special showcase episode of Connecting the Docs. We have a number of great guests for you today, including our very own Josh Hager. Hello. How are you doing, John? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good today. Excited for this one. Excellent. Yeah, because we are also showcasing a number of things today. First and foremost, we are showcasing the work of our oral history intern and guest host on this podcast, Tiana West. Hello. Secondly, we are showcasing Dr. David Soselski and his work on Abraham Galloway with an interview in a little bit, but if you want to say hi, you can. It's nice to be here. Terrific. Good to have you. And finally, we are showcasing Abraham Galloway and more on him from Tiana. Abraham Galloway was a fiery young slave rebel, radical abolitionist, and union spy who rose out of bondage to become one of the most significant and stirring black leaders in the South during the Civil War. Throughout his brief mercurial life, Galloway fought against slavery and injustice. This riveting portrait illuminates Galloway's life and deepens our insight into the Civil War and Reconstruction as experienced by African Americans in the South. And that is a quote from The Fire of Freedom by David Soselski. I was out on a date with my husband downtown Raleigh and we decided to take a tour of the state building since we'd never been there before. It was cool, lots of nice exhibits to check out and a steep, narrow flight of stairs. If you know, you know. When we arrived on the second floor, there's this room where the Senate and House used to meet and I see this giant poster with this black man on it. The name immediately struck me. The name Hankins and the name Galloway. Abraham Hankins Galloway. I also noticed his eyebrows, thick and almost a unibrow. How much you want to bet this is my cousin? I said to my husband with a chuckle. He probably is. Everybody's your cousin, he responds, which is not wrong. When I began to read the write-up about him, my jaw hit the floor. Abraham Hankins Galloway was born February 8, 1837 in Smithville Township, now known as Southport, North Carolina. I knew it. Abraham Hankins Galloway is related to me. Hankins and Galloway are two prominent names in Southport. My grandmother is a Hankins, and we are cousins to the Galloways and he has the Hankins eyebrow. To read about someone from my family's hometown being such a prominent figure during the Civil War gave me so much pride. My roots were run deep in the mouth of the Cape Fear River. My people are from Southport. How come I'm just now finding about Abraham Galloway? Abraham Harris Hankins Galloway was born to a young enslaved woman named Hester Hankins. Hester was 17 years old at the time of Abraham's birth and owned by Louisa Hankins, the widow of a Methodist minister. In David Soselski's book, The Fire of Freedom, Hester is described as having skin the color of ebony and never learned to read or write. Abraham's father was a white ship pilot named John Wesley Galloway. Though John Wesley Galloway fathered Abraham, he was not his owner. Abraham was owned by Milton Martin Hankins, the son of the widow who owned his mother. One of the things I found interesting about Abraham's early life is that his father openly acknowledged him as his son. 
In Soselsky's book, he states, though state law and social custom prohibited sexual relationships between slaves and free persons, they were commonplace in Brunswick County as elsewhere in the South. And Abraham is quoted by saying that his father recognized me as his son and protected me as far as he was allowed to. We all know that white men frequently fathered children by enslaved women, but it was usually as a result of rape. It was rare to have a white man in the South publicly acknowledge his black child. Acknowledging his son, Abraham, also meant the acknowledgement of his relationship with Hester. During this time period, there wasn't a law deeming that necessary. Now this is a very against the grain move to me. John Wesley came from a long line of planters but didn't really follow in his family's footsteps. And by publicly acknowledging Abraham as his son, he is basically rebelling against the status quo in a lot of ways. Abraham is like his father in a lot of ways, but Abraham pulled the ultimate against the grain when he escaped. Throughout most of his teenage life though, his owner allowed him to work as a brick mason out in Wilmington. But in 1857, when Abraham was 20, he and his friend Richard Eden escaped from slavery with a ship captain's assistance. The captain agreed to hide Galloway and Eden below deck. Ships headed north were often fumigated by burning turpentine to flush out any runaway slaves that snuck on board. Galloway and Eden planned to use oilcloth, hogs bladders, and wet towels to ward off the smoke. But luckily for them, the ship was not fumigated. Galloway and Eden arrived successfully in Philadelphia, but went further north to Canada as to not run into any bounty hunters. When Galloway got to Canada, he began his work for the abolitionist movement, traveling back and forth between the two countries. In 1860, he traveled to Haiti to start recruiting men to organize a John Brown type military invasion in the South. During this time, he did the bulk of his work as a spy for the Union. In April 29, 1864, Galloway and a group of black Southern delegates met with President Abraham Lincoln to urge Lincoln to advocate for African-American citizenship and political equality. Shortly after, he was chosen to serve as a North Carolina delegate for the National Convention of Colored Men of the United States. The convention took place in Syracuse, New York. The convention founded the National Equal Rights League. In the book, there are stories about his experience at the National Convention of Colored Men. He was elected as a delegate of the North Carolina Constitutional Convention of 1868 and elected as a state senator also in 1868. Unfortunately, two years later, he passed away unexpectedly on September 1st, 1870. Abraham was so well regarded that over 6,000 people from all races attended his funeral. Now, when I began searching for materials on Abraham Galloway, I ran into some difficulty. I found that there weren't many materials on him, and even fewer in our archives here. Josh, can you speak to us on why there aren't many records on Galloway? Absolutely. One of our mottos here is that every record is a story, and that is true because we're the government records repository for the state of North Carolina. So... We have records for people that don't leave sort of diaries or letters that are in special collections other places. The flip side of that is most of the records that we do have, especially in the 19th century and earlier, are going to be a snapshot of a brief portion of his time. So if you look at the citations in uh, Dr. Soselsky's book, you'll see things like wills and estates. 
that provide genealogical information, which is fantastic, but it doesn't give you Galloway's words. It doesn't give you his day-to-day life. That kind of a thing just wasn't going to be in most government records unless you're the governor of the state. Uh, There are also institutional challenges. Obviously, in his early years, Galloway was enslaved. And enslaved persons were not considered persons under the law. And considering most government records are when somebody interacts with the legal system, at least in that time period, the odds of him showing up in a legal record, unless he's showing up in the context of a property transaction, which is horrible to think, but is where you would see him in, in records, is slim. And then, of course, in the Civil War era, he's fighting for the Union. And in North Carolina, we have a bountiful collection of Civil War official records, but they're all Confederate. The Union records that anybody who served in the Union from North Carolina, their records are going to be in Washington, D.C., or perhaps in another northern state, but not in the state archives of North Carolina. Uh, And even when he becomes a member of the Constitutional Convention and the General Assembly, the records for those particular agencies are not arranged by individual members. They're the minutes, in the case of the Constitutional Convention, it's the minutes of of their meetings, their proceedings, and then their actual drafts of the Constitution. It doesn't have in there saying Abraham Galloway proposed this or voted this way. It's not arranged that way, uh, not usually. And then the General Assembly records are also going to be by bills or resolutions. You might see Galloway's name, but you're not going to have like transcriptions of his speeches. In fact, you don't really have transcriptions of speeches until you have the uh, transcription by audio in the later half of the 20th century. Um, So there are gaps in our records because of these institutional and historical challenges that where special collections helps fill those gaps. We have special collections here, private collections. There are private collections everywhere else too that can help fill these gaps. And if you see in uh, The Fire of Freedom, uh, Dr. Soselsky cites collections from all over the country uh, on Galloway and on related topics. So there are other records to help fill in these gaps, but that's why there are gaps within our collection and within government records specifically. And it's an interesting parallel to our recent episode we had on the DeFabio truancy case in the Outer Banks, because in that case, we had a voluminous amount of records due to both the government records involved as well as the fact all the special collections are in our custody. And the gap we had was we didn't know what the children thought about the case. And in that case, it was sort of a, and we explained why there aren't children's voices from the 1950s. Here, it's the reverse. What we do have are little snapshots, and there's so many gaps in our archival record as an institution. Um, it doesn't mean that Galloway shouldn't be talked about you know, in any less sense. He's incredibly significant. His life is so significant. It's just why, when you think about Galloway, the records aren't necessarily there. It's also, I speak as the records description unit head now, when you're looking in government records for a person You probably aren't going to find them listed by name, but you should look in any kind of agency they may have interacted with. Uh, That goes in 19th and 20th centuries too. Don't limit yourself just to searching by a specific name in our catalog or our finding aids. Think broader and you're gonna find a lot of amazing content in those state and local uh, 
uh, agency records, even if the name you're looking for isn't there. Great information, Josh. Uh, before we get into the interview with Dr. Soselsky, why don't we take a short break? Applications are now open for the 2023 Traveling Archivist Program. This consultative program helps cultural heritage institutions improve preservation and access for archival collections. Applications are due February 28th. Learn more and apply today. Visit archives.ncdcr.gov and search Traveling Archivist Program. Now, back to the show. Now let's talk to the person who's done more research on Abraham Galloway than anyone else. Yeah, we, we've had the privilege of listening to uh, quotes from Dr. Soselsky, and, and I, think, I think it's probably interesting for him to hear himself quoted <laughs> back to him. Um, I, but, I thought they sounded familiar. <laughs> <laughs> but we also have the privilege of having him here. So we have the author of The Fire of Freedom, Abraham Galloway and the Slave Civil War, historian Dr. David Soselsky with us to talk about Abraham's amazing legacy. Tiana, why don't you tell us more? Briefly, Dr. David Soselsky is a historian and author of numerous award-winning books and hundreds of articles about the North Carolina coast. In addition to The Fire of Freedom, he is also the author of The Waterman Song, Slavery and Freedom in Maritime North Carolina and Democracy Betrayed, The Wilmington Race Riot of 1898 and its legacy. Now, I first met David when I went to see The Fire of Freedom play starring Mike Wiley. It was playing in Wilmington at Bellion Hall, and I was just so excited to be there. There was a talk back afterwards, and after the show was over, me and my husband and, and my cousins waited outside the theater until David came out, and we just kind of accosted him, and I was like, hello. I just let him know like who I was. Was and that I was a student, a public history student, and I just wanted him to know how much I appreciated his work and that I was related to Galloway. Um, because the work that David is doing is, is pretty closely aligned with the work that I aspire to do. So David, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for waiting outside Bay and Hall and saying hi to me. Yeah, no that problem. That was sweet. That was great. So tell me about yourself. I know you're from Eastern North Carolina. Um, I'd be interested to know about, uh, about your life and when you first discovered Abraham Galloway. Uh, sure. Um, I grew up uh, between New Bern and Beaufort in a little community called uh, Harlow. Uh, North Harlow has a sign, um, but we don't have one in Harlow. Um, I still own the family uh, farm there and still spend a lot of time there and I'm still very attached to that community. When, I, um, when I'm there I sleep in the bedroom where my mother was born and her father and his father and you could go a couple more generations back and in Harlow uh, people call our house uh, the new house. Uh, the family home place is uh, down the road three-quarters mile and it's a it's the kind of place um, and that's so that's where my mother's people were from and my father uh, was a, uh, a second-generation Polish immigrant who had um, uh, came to the Cherry Point Marine Corps Air Station during the Second World War uh, and he was a career Marine and he uh, he met my mother a local farm girl at that point um, there at the base, and they settled there um, after the after the war. Um, he continued to go off and 
Uh, he served all the way to Vietnam. Uh, Harlow, I think, shaped my view of, you know, like, had a lot to do with my becoming a historian. It's the kind of place where every little thing, like you're, like the place you're from, every little thing seemed to have a story behind it. We have four pecan trees in the front yard. Each of them is called by a name that connected to a story. You know, if the my children's ball rolls over by the tree on the front left, we say, your ball is over there by the tree your grandmother ran over. She ran over it in 1918, I think, uh, in a Model T when it was this big. It still has a crook in it, you know. Um, and each of them has a story. And the community itself is, uh, you know, is a Harlow, just the name Harlow by itself, sort of like um, Galloway Road and all that area where the Hankinses are from and the Galloways in your county. To outsiders, we're Harlow. Um, if you're from Harlow, we, we're really nine or ten different communities. We're a community. We're one community, but we're all these other things. And that, and from a very early age, I I understood, like this was just something I was taught. So a mile from me, there's an African American slash Native American community that's that's been free and had land since the 1730s. It's a very distinctive community in a lot of different ways. Go across the creek. We call them across the creekers totally different world and uh, Harlow's majority African-American and Indian um, but it was like this feeling that um, there were stories behind everything and that the stories were important and that uh, in my work what I've tried to do is to excavate the layers of our past instead of choosing a I'm not a historian of a subject or of a, I'm a historian of a place. So my books have ranged over centuries. I've, um, environmental history, African American history, food. Um, but in each of them, I'm, I'm trying to go deeper and deeper um, into my place, sort of like a, the, seeking the world in a, in a grain of sand in a way. And what I hope when it is that I might discover truths about American history that might be missed by somebody looking up here, looking down uh, from afar. And, uh, and I think that works when, when I do my job right. There's other times where I write things or do things and only me and my cousin Bubba care about, um, you know, the place I've written about that day. Uh, so. That's really, my work has always been attached to that place and to, um, uh, you know, I, I always felt that the stories of e Eastern North Carolina are as rich and as deep and as interesting as any place uh, in America. That's awesome. So how did you get from stories of Eastern North Carolina, a little bit more north to down to southeastern North Carolina. What made you, how did you stumble upon Well, that? I have spread out a little beyond <laughs> Harlow. Not far. Um, 
my best friend Tim Tyson teases me that um, that I write about three counties, but actually there's many, several more at least. Um, Galloway, uh, I'm sure it's the case with with you all as well, but the, in many cases what starts my historical, the things that I find most interesting historical and that I go after as a historian are when I'm encountering, uh, I find things in the historical record that don't make sense to me based on what I've been taught or what I've read in books, what I've seen in television, whatever. And um, and as I did other work that, that I didn't know who Abraham Galloway was, but as I did work, other work on the 19th century, I kept running across stories in historical records, including here, that um, that were so unlike the history of the Civil War and of slavery and to some degree Reconstruction that I really didn't know what to make of them. Um, I tell my students sometimes that I, um, it's embarrassing to admit it, but for years I had a manila folder labeled Weird Galloway Stories. And, you know, um, I would make copies of whatever I saw, military report or you know, whatever, and I stuffed them into the manila folder and go, well, you know, that doesn't make much sense to me. You know, Galloway going behind enemy lines to rescue his mother or negotiating over the terms under which African-Americans will serve in the Union Army or the Haitian expedition, what they called the second John Brown and, and many more. Um, the people that surrounded him. One of his lieutenants subscribed to the New York Tribune and the congressional record while he was a slave. Some of the people around him spoke five and six languages. This wasn't really the history of slavery and, and civil war that I was taught. I sort of grew up with a Gone with the Wind version of the Civil War. I mean, a little better than that, but if I had to like, so um, it wasn't until sort of by accident that I, uh, in the late 1990s, I um, uh, was part of a um, commemoration of what we now call, and I think it's right, the Wilmington Massacre that was held in Wilmington. And it, was a, it was a year-long series of events, but uh, there was a scholarly component in which uh, Tim Tyson and my book was part of it. And there was a large um, uh, a gathering, of, of, of a, a conference. It would, maybe 800 or 1,000 people came to. And John Hope Franklin was part of that. And I realized that I didn't have anything at all to talk about at this. I wasn't, a, at, at that point, I was not a historian of the Wilmington Massacre. And so I looked at the Galloway, the weird Galloway story folder. And I 
you know, first of all, I was kind of surprised how fat it had gotten. And it was at that point not that I began trying to figure out who he was. And in that case, I had, I did some of the most basic things. I mean, I, at, at that point, I had just collected stories. I, ha I had not done anything to figure I had never gone into an archive searching for him. Um, so um, that's how I got started. And at that point, maybe there were a half dozen people in the United States that would have recognized his name. And if so, they would have recognized it because he was in the first group of African-American state legislators from, um, from North Carolina. So uh, all of it was um, fresh and new. And, and, one, and I learned the hard way that once you start with Galloway, he, he doesn't let you go that easy. Yeah, I can definitely uh, attest to that. And I love how you spoke about how his story is so unlike what we see or what we've always seen about, about slavery, about the Civil War, and how that kind of drew you to, drew you into like pursuing more information about him. Can you tell me something about Galloway's life that you'd like to highlight? Like you've got this big uh, manila envelope of weird Galloway stories. What's one of those? cool Galloway stories that you could share with us. Do I have time to talk about the opening of the book? Sure. Um, in May of 1863, the Union finally decide the Union Army finally decides that it's going to recruit African Americans, uh, uh, enslaved African Americans in the South to serve in the Union Army. And, um, and one of the first places that they send a recruiter uh, into the South uh, is New Bern, North Carolina, not far from where I grew up. And that wasn't an accident. The Union Army had occupied uh, New Bern at that point um, a full year earlier, and African Americans in New Bern had been petitioning to join the Union Army for much of that time. And um, a, a word had also reached Washington and Massachusetts, which was actually the organizer of the regiment, um, that a thousand African-American men had been drilling in their own regiment um, in the meantime, and that they were anxious to fight in the Union Army. Uh, the Union... Um, uh, Governor Andrews of Massachusetts sends an emissary to New Bern in the company of the general who's going to organize the regiment. The, man's, the emissary was uh, Edward Kinsley, and he handled kind of, I guess we'd call today, special operations, uh, for both for Governor Andrews and later in the war for President Lincoln. Uh, he was not a member of the army. He, he had no official title at all, and um, ever. He, he was offered, uh, he had been offered titles. Uh, and when he gets to New Bern, um, uh, I, nobody wants to join the Union Army. African-Americans, um, it's, it's, it's almost dead silence. Uh, 
and everything that he had heard about African Americans wanting to fight in the Union Army seemed to be kind of exploding in his face. What he did not know is that by that time, New Bern had been occupied by the Union Army for a year, and African Americans in New Bern had found the Union to be um, extremely uh, racist and abusive along terms of race throughout that year, um, abusing African American women, uh, treating African Americans who were who were then free as if they were slaves. Um, he also, Kinsley also did not know that they were highly politically organized by that point and extremely um, angry with President Lincoln. Lincoln had done the Emancipation Proclamation, but he had not yet made, here he was asking for African Americans to serve in the uh, Union Army, and he had not promised even the most basic rights of American citizenship, voting rights, citizen, nothing. Uh, it's people are watching, journalists are watching. Uh, Kinsley it finds himself in a um, uh, potentially extremely delicate position if if the the Union desperately needs African-American volunteers by this point, or they wouldn't have allowed, Af or, or they wouldn't have done this. Um, Kinsley discovers that everyone tells him he needs to see this man, Galloway. Kinsley discovers that an African-American woman a former slave named Mary Ann Starkey is the way to reach Galloway. She runs a boarding house, uh, which is sort of the favored location of the highest ranking uh, union officers uh, stationed in New Bern. Today, I think we would also say it was a bit of a front in her eyes. I mean, that it, that it, was, a, it was sort of a, a center for intelligence gathering from the African-American point of view and that she was part of that. Kinsley goes out of his way to make a good impression on Marianne Starkey. And he, he knows, she knows that he wants to find Galloway. Eventually, Marianne Starkey tells him after dinner one night, it's a boarding house, they serve, she serves dinners every night, tells, she tells him that, um, Galloway's ready to see him. And uh, that night, uh, uh, late that night, Kinsley is carried to Marianne Starkey's house and uh, he's carried into the uh, attic, the eaves were you know, sort of the, v, the upside down V. And uh, when he enters the room, there's a line of African-American men on both sides. And at the end, there's a desk with a Bible and a candle on it. And, uh, and on the other side, Abraham Galloway. That night, Galloway uh, and his lieutenants, uh, 
negotiate the terms under which African Americans will serve in the Union Army. And uh, it includes things like equal pay, equal, equal, equally well armed, education for their children, uh, employment for African American women that actually makes a difference in the fight against the Confederacy. Uh, they also asked for some things that they had to know they could not get from Kinsley, but they asked for them anyway. Um, they wanted Lincoln's commitment to uh, guarantee that African-American soldiers who were captured by the Confederate, by Confederate troops would be treated as prisoners of war uh, rather than executed or, uh, or uh, returned to slavery. Early the next morning, sometime 5, 5.30 in the morning, they finished their negotiations and um, uh, according to Kinsley, um, two of his lieutenants, John Randolph and Isaac Felton, Reverend Isaac Felton, hold uh, revolvers to Kinsley's head and have him give his personal pledge that he'll live up to the agreement. Galloway, who's still working as an intelligence agent at that time, uh, Galloway, Felton, and Randolph all go back across in enemy lines, and they're gone for four or five days. On the, f I believe, the fifth day, a young boy, a young African-American boy, um, comes to Mary Ann uh, comes from Mary Ann Starkey and tells Union commanders to be ready that night uh, and that Galloway would be returning. And at midnight that night on the southwest side of New Bern, um, according to Kinsley and other reports, um, uh, roughly 4,000 African-American men, women, and children come into New Bern in a single night and the next day, the first wave of the African Brigade, what, they, what comes to be known as the African Brigade, the 35th USCT eventually, is organized. And eventually, there's somewhere between five and 6,000 uh, African-Americans recruited in and around the New Bern area. That was the kind of story that went into my weird Galloway folder. On a lot of levels, the role of African-American women the degree to which they're organized. You don't, you don't organize a reg that many people to come across enemy lines if they're not already organized. You don't go off in four days. And I was always told that it was African-Americans were like, when they, find, when they were allowed to join the Union Army, were sort of just happy to be there. Clearly, that's not the case. They're setting the terms of, of engagement here. I was always told that sort of they, Afri the local African-Americans were kind of led around by white people or by free African-Americans from the North. Nobody in Galloway's in inner circle at any time in the war was from the North. They had, were all, there were, a, 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 there were some free African-Americans from Eastern North Carolina, 
but mo almost all of them were enslaved people. So when you read stories like that, A, and of course you want to authenticate what you can and figure out what you can and cannot say, but you also have to figure out, like, you want to know who Galloway is, and of course you want to know who Marion Starkey is, but you also want to know, like, what did I get, what, in that case it's me having self-doubts, like, what did I get wrong that this seems like such a um, bizarre story? Because as I would learn, Galloway and Marianne Starkey too, for that matter, were extraordinary individuals in any time and place. But they were of a people. They were of a culture. They were of a, of a broad community of people. And in Galloway's case, I think his fiery persona and his accomplishments and so forth, you see them first. But really, what's most significant to me about him is that he's opening up this much broader world um, of African-American slave resistance that both existed before the Civil War and then comes out into full bloom during the war. Sorry to go on so long. No, that is that just made all the hairs on my arm stand up. That's awesome. So 4,000 people across enemy lines in the dark of night. With, and more coming. More would more be coming. coming. So question, what were some of the challenges in finding information on Galloway since he was so, like, secretive? You're giving me painful flashbacks. <laughs> well, it was hard. I, I, to speak to the archives role, and I, I feel bereft not to have mentioned it already, I certainly found important things, important information here at the State Archives. Not all of it is like exactly footnotable. You know, I went through the census reports and wills and estate records for people who had no connection, like for his whole neighborhood. You know, I wanted to under, like to, to build a shape of him. Did the same for Marianne Starkey. Did the same for John Randolph. You know, you cast a wide net when you have to. And that's not exactly footnotable stuff but it does help flesh out from whence they, it was really important to discover here that Galloway was from a poor and fishing maritime part of Smithfield even, you know, and that this, this was a maritime world that we're looking at. The single most important thing, the book could not have happened without, um, uh, an archivist here, but it wasn't necessarily because of he was always sending me to documents that were here. Uh, George Stevenson, I don't know if anyone remembers Mr. Stevenson now. Stevenson was a chain smoking, heavy nicotine. Like you know, he did, he, he un, you know unfiltered camels. We're talking. Uh, archivist. He was from. He grew up in the in the uh, Baptist, the Middlesex orphanage, but he was originally from. Or, I think his 
father was a tenant farmer. They lived across the river from me when when he was a child and lost his parents, Pamlico County. He was the finest historical mind that I've ever seen anywhere in any context, in an archive, museum, or university. And um, I was always, he taught me more about the craft of history than any, by far, than any professor that I ever had. And so I, I never wanted to waste Mr. Stevenson's time. So I'd only come to him with my, you know, when I was really stumped. And so with a problem like Galloway, I would just give him, like, here's everything I have. And I'm stuck. And he would say he would look at it and then maybe, and think about it. And then maybe a week later, he'd call me up and said, you know, why don't you know, come in when you can? And I would get almost a tutorial. He, he would ask questions. I mean, he, he would say, have you looked at this? Have you looked at this? This contact, you, you talked to earlier, Josh, about connections to government records. And he would say, well, have you looked for this? Have you, you know, he says, um, uh, he probably didn't get a, a, a spies were not entitled to uh, federal pensions, but you should check. That was actually a gold mine. I mean, an absolute gold mine. I'll tell that story later if you want. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, uh, connections to his church, every part of a person's life after he had studied Galloway, he, he made me, it wasn't that he was necessarily, in this case at least, it wasn't necessarily that he was giving me information, it's that he was helping me think through the problems of how to deal with Galloway's life. And it was very, very difficult. A lot of his particular knowledge was based on the really pathbreaking work that he had done for Janet Yellen in the um, Harriet Jacobs, um, uh, the first annotated edition of Harriet Jacobs, which I bet it has 150 pages of footnotes. And almost all of them were written by George. And he refused as he has refused me with other things. Like I would say, George, you've done so much on this article, you have to be a co-author. And he would go, I'm not even interested in that time period. <laughs> you know, um, and, and uh, so he, he, he didn't even let, it wasn't Gene Yellen's fault. He, he, he wouldn't, that wasn't his thing. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry to riff on that so long, but but there's but there's I do I guess I do want to emphasize that there's more to to the archival the experience of working with archivist and archivist in my experience than just yes I love finding great documents, but um, thinking through historical problems with people who are have a knowledge of that that knowledge of problem solving and where the written word somewhere will connect to people's real life experience. 
is just invaluable. And Galloway, as, as Josh mentioned, was hard. I mean, he, he, he was enslaved half his life. You know, he doesn't appear in a census. You know, he doesn't, or a lot of other things, tax records, or, you know. He, he doesn't, um, for much of his life after he escapes, he's trying not to leave a paper trail. <laughs> and he's illiterate or almost illiterate. Um, Marianne Starkey, I probably found 50 or 60 of her letters um, eventually. Um, but I never found anything like that for Galloway. I found other things, but so. Um, uh, I don't remember what the question was, but I hope that answers it. Well, you actually, that's great. You actually answered a couple of my questions all in one because I was going to ask, like, what kind of records would a spy create? But it seems like because there are so little that are just out there in the open, you kind of have to rely on lots of different things from someone's life to put the pieces together. And I wanted to, can I ask you about Marianne Starkey? I know there's, like, letters that she wrote. I don't. I can't remember, remember if it's correspondence between the two of them or she had a diary where she wrote about that there, time. It's mostly letters, um, letters, some receipts. Um, and um, she herself was not literate or not. She was minimally literate. Uh, she would dictate the letters to uh, uh, union officers who were abolitionist and supportive of, of her and her work. And I eventually found collections of her letters at uh, Duke, the Library of Congress, the Schomburg Center at the New York Public Library, and at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And, um, and most of the letters, Galloway appears in the letters quite often, but most of the letters are, are um, between Kinsley and, uh, and Marianne Starkey or other Union officers, abolitionists who were stationed uh, in New Bern during the war. That include, uh, th though there's, uh, there's a couple of real nice letters between Marianne Starkey and uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Wow. Um, uh, because her brother was serving in, uh, in New Bern. And um, Harriet Beecher Stowe actually designed the first flag for the African Brigade at the, re at the request of uh, Marianne Starkey. So that's awesome. It seems like there's a great deal of information on Galloway and, and it's stored in various repositories. So how do you go about actually finding those materials and were you able to determine like how they ended up in so many different places? Drove me crazy. Um, well, like, like, like any historian that works with you, you folks, you know, you you fo you follow lines of inquiry, um, uh, and um, uh, in some cases um, they lead places, in some cases they don't. 
um, uh, at times I'm I'm following real leads. For example, uh, a colleague who was doing a visiting research year at Harvard stumbled into Galloway in a uh, financial ledger for a semi-secret anti-slavery society in Boston. And he called me. And that notation, it was just one line, um, uh, told me two people's names that Galloway was connected to in the anti-slavery movement in the North. And it told me that his destination that week was Haiti. That's six months of work. I mean, I know it sounds bad or sounds, but so then I'm, I'm finding why, at that point I didn't know Galloway had gone to Haiti. So I'm finding out who everything I can about those two abolitionists and how their lives intersected with Galloway and what, and what his involvement with them meant. But then I'm finding, literally finding which, every ship that went out of Boston for Haiti. And what was that, which actually, I, I think I had it the day, you know, it was just a few day period, so it, it wasn't that hard. But then I had to find out what that ship was bound and who was on it and where did it go in Haiti. And, and I'm reading Haitian newspapers and I'm, you know, I'm reading, you know, it just goes on and on. And, and it leads to this whole story of, of what they sometimes called the second, what was to be a second John Brown. You have to remember these people were, the crowd that Galloway was with in the North were uh, considered the first John Brown a wild success. Um, they were fundamentally political terrorists. They're, they're on my side, <laughs> or they're, they're on the side of justice and peace, but, but they're, um, they knew they knew John Brown was going down. They, they, they never took seriously that it might inspire a slave revolt that would spread or anything like that. They're trying to create a do a political act that would tear the country in half and lead to a war for the liberation of African Americans. And in that sense, they considered it a success. And the second, and then their second goal, including some of the survivors of John Brown one was to do a similar operation that would have been even more quote unquote outrageous and more, more a center of political turmoil. Imagine a ship or ships of black people from Haiti coming ashore in Louisiana or Mississippi. Would it have led to a, one or two of those people might have thought that it might have might lead to a vast revolt of, but most, it was a political act. And um, that story had never been told. And again, you, 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 you don't, you follow the line of inquiry wherever it, wherever it goes. Other times you just get, you just look, you just sniff around, right? You go, um, I'm stuck 
this is hard. I'm going to find every, I'm going to go through the officer and senior enlisted corps of everybody in the African brigade, these white people in the north, and I'm going to trace them to their hometowns. I'm going to look for their military records, which is one, one, one trail. I'm going to trace them to their hometown and look for private manuscripts. I'm going to look for correspondence that they might have that ended up in the American Antiquarian Society, or one of them was in Hawaii, which I did not go to Hawaii. They were nice enough to send the documents from the... One of them later becomes a... Hallowell later becomes a ambassador or an ambassador's attache in Hawaii, and he retired there. His papers are in Hawaii. He talks a lot about African-American life in New Bern in those papers in Hawaii. Um, uh, and, and so I kind of would just sniff around, like, where, where, where would he, what, you know, yeah. And sometimes, usually I did not get lucky. I remember being at the American Antiquarian Society at a time when I didn't have a lot of money, extra money to spend, you know, trying to find one note card of information that would make me feel like I had not just wasted a week. You know, you get that feeling, you know, like, okay, I just did this whole trip and I totally got nothing. And I think I found like some background kind of thing. It definitely wasn't about Galloway, but, but it was, I think I, 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 I think just so it would be in my notes and I could be like, I'll look at this and realize that I thought I would realize that the trip was worth it. It was so totally not, but, <laughs> but, but I didn't know until a lot, there were a lot of the off, there were several officer corps who's, people who served with Galloway, whose papers were there. Um, on the other hand, I forget the, I'm afraid I'm, I forget the general's name, Peel. His papers were in the New York State Archives, and they were a gold mine. Um, you know, he, he, Galloway was all over them. And in that case, I had found part of the command structure that Galloway went, worked through. Other times I missed it. And uh, this this question may be redundant, but I, given that he was, you know, such this prominent figure during his time period, what do what else do you think, other than the fact that there was not very much of a paper trail, what else do you think contributed to Abraham Galloway not being as well known today? Oh, white supremacy. Does that need to be explained? No, it doesn't. <laughs> um, but, can, but to explain it just a little bit, hopefully, slap me down. Um, we all know that um, an African-American man like Galloway, we know now, would not have seemed like a strange figure in the 1860s or 1870s. Now, he may have been an extraordinary person and, su and such, but, but it wasn't like people were there going, um, uh, we've never seen, they knew lots of Abraham Galloways, 
and they knew lots of Marianne Starkey's. Um, uh, in many cases, they white, were scared of those people, but they certainly knew about them and knew of them. They knew n n after 1898, we get a whole different history and Abraham Galloway becomes an unimaginable African-American man in the state of North Carolina and in the United States. That's when he goes to the weird Galloway folder in my thing because, because I don't know that, I don't know that, that earlier. I'm, I grew up with that, I inherited the historical framework that came out of 1898 and 1900. And so Abraham Galloway does not fit in like the Rhett Butler version, Scarlet version, you know, when in truth, you know, Abraham Galloway would have slapped Rhett down and, you know, or the two of them would have run off together or something. I don't know, but, 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 but the, um, and I, I think all of us in North Carolina now, uh, I think the Black Lives Matter movement has um, contributed a great deal to this, as well as lots of good scholarship and good curation and all that, is that we know that we're, in a way, we're starting afresh and figuring out who we are as North Carolinians, um, and that we're beginning to understand how deeply our our framework in which we what we inherited about knowledge about what is North Carolina and how deeply tied to the events of 1898 and 1900. So it's a, it's a story for Galloway, but it's really a story. To me, it's an exciting thing. Um, uh, my generation was very, was, or at least my friends, you know, people that I worked with were trying to pull back cobwebs because we were not seeing clearly. We grew up in this. And it seems like um, I think younger people today will, are, will be starting from a, a, have a clearer vision now. They can actually, like, stop looking back to the past so much with a sense of throwing out old tropes and such. And like, okay, well then, then who are we? You know, what what has made us, you know, and that will help understand the world that we're in today. Um, the old version doesn't really help you understand the world that we actually live in much. Um, it's hard to use it as a basis of change. Um, plus, you get to discover cool people like Marianne Starkey and Abraham Galloway. <laughs> I 100% agree. Do you have Do you have any new research on Galloway's life? Not a bit. <laughs> I keep hoping. Um, uh, I published the first Galloway article, my only Galloway article, uh, I guess in 1998 in that book, and uh, and I heard from all kinds of people with new information about Galloway, you know, from archivists and other historians. They're like, well, I didn't understand who this was, but now, you know, you should know about this or you should know about this. And since the publication of The Fire of Freedom, um, I, I've been a little disappointed that I haven't, I, I'm sure I couldn't, I'm sure I didn't find everything. And um, 
and one of the things I'd like to, I've seen glimmers of that I have not um, followed up on is that I've st in recent years I've started getting close to some African American local historians in Brunswick County who know a lot about your family and Galloway's family. And I think I, um, I think there's more to tell there. Um, right now it's just like an intuition thing for me, but I can tell they know things that I wish I had known then and that I'd like to be able to like listen and go back into the archive. Um, uh, um, even learning about um, Marion Evans there uh, has guided me. It was an African-American woman from uh, just outside Bolivia, um, just off of Galloway Road, who I'm sure is a cousin of yours. Mm -hmm. um, but just learning through her and other and the elderly people in the neighborhood that she has introduced me to I can tell there's a tradition traditions of resistance there that that I haven't seen that they don't tie explicitly to Abraham Galloway but they're all around those families and and I feel like that's a area that somebody could could um, uh, would might well find something important about the early days and the, 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 the world and the age from whence Abraham Galloway came. Yeah. Um, so what advice do you have for historians or history enthusiasts who are starting archival research and how would you recommend they get started? I don't know if I have much original to say. Um, Find something that excites you. There's a story everywhere. You cannot turn. Um, if you can miss Abraham Galloway, you can miss anything. If you look, you will find. When I was young, I tried to act. Um, like I knew a lot. I was, a, a sh I, I was reluctant to show to archivists uh, uh, my ignorance. Uh, uh, and I wanted to be like, um, you know, like I had a fancy degree in things. And, um, and I would, a piece of advice I would give to younger historians, um, is to uh, um, uh, take advantage of the knowledge of the archivists at places like this, and don't don't go in even with specific questions if you don't add, let them know everything you're doing. Give them as many things to hold on to. Things that don't that might not be important to you might to you the researcher might mean something to them. Um, uh, don't act like you need... For me, it got to the point 
sometime in my 30s or 40s where, where I would act ignorant of almost everything. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I would, I, I just found like, I'm not gonna let George know I, or whoever know that, that I know anything about this. When in fact I had like studied it for a month or something. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that happens, you get off, like the line of inquiry or the line of research that I was doing, I may have come to sort of conclusions that giving, giving the, the archivist or librarian, the skilled archivist or librarian the chance to draw from what they know without starting where at a certain point where I'm at, they might well start back here and then go in a different way and get there better, you know, a, a better route. Um, and as I said, when talking about George Stevenson, the, the actual work of that kind of sleuthing is to me, one, I guess for a lot of people, is the most exciting. Um, you're going through the stories of people's lives, you know, and, and uh, I just find it tremendously um, exciting and um, lean in, lean into it, young people, have fun, um, ask a lot of questions, um, don't be ashamed if you don't know things. Wow, yeah. We learned that you were a descendant of a Revolutionary War soldier. So we How did you learn that? A little birdie told us. Are you looking forward to you the... sneaky archivist? <laughs> <laughs> so, are you looking forward to the upcoming America two hundred fiftieth commemoration? I am. Awesome. I am, and I assume the reason you know is because I'm a proud member of the Isaac Carter chapter of the uh, Sons of the American Revolution, a group I thought that I would never belong to. Wow. Uh, and we are the uh, only majority African-American chapter of the SAR in the United States. And in fact, I think our membership makes up somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the African-American membership of the SAR in the entire United States. Just from Harlow, just from our little community. And uh, there's a... Uh, I mentioned earlier the free community, the free African-American community, um, that uh, quite a number of uh, men from that community served in the American Revolution. And uh, I guess five or six years ago, they organized um, the uh, Isaac Carter chapter. And uh, they found a Revolutionary War ancestor for me, which I did not know I had. Um, and uh, it is one of the great uh, joys of my, being part of the chapter is one of the great joys of, of my life. Wow, that's awesome. So is there anything new that you're working on now? There's all kinds of things new. <laughs> um, that I'm mostly not ready to talk about as okay. far as big things. Um, Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Okay, gotcha. Well, before I let you know how much I thoroughly enjoyed this interview, where can we go to read some of your work? Other than the books that you've written, where can we read your journals and articles? I put an embarrassingly large number of articles and essays uh, on, um, 
on a blog that you can find under my name. At this point, it's probably several, I don't know, three or four hundred. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, and that also includes some of some essays, lectures, things of way more than anybody would possibly want on uh, um, uh, so that's a good place to go um, awesome well David this has been one of the highlights of my internship and I just want to say thank you so so much for responding to my emails and being willing to come and be with us today this has been Awesome. Anything for, you're from the right part of the world for me. You, <laughs> I will always say yes. Awesome. Thank and you so much for being here today. It's been a delight. Thank you. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Soselski, Tiana, and Josh for sharing your knowledge and connecting the docs for us. Uh, and thank you to listen for listening to our discussion of Abraham Galloway and others. Uh, special thanks again to our guests, Dr. David Soselski and Josh Hager, to our guest host and intern extraordinaire. Tiana West. Thanks to our producers, Brooke Chuka and Shauna Carr. And to the voice you hear at the beginning and end of every episode, Judy Allen Dotson. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocs.podbeam.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People, at ncarchives.wordpress.com.